Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is the case of Lucille Butterworth, Episode 3. In Episode 2, a new suspect emerged from the file. In 1976, Geoffrey Charles Hunt allegedly confessed to the murder of Lucille, but his admissions were not recorded or written down. The confession was dismissed as wrong by one senior officer, and all the reports and notes of the conversation were mysteriously lost. The interrogation register of that night, signed by the lead investigator, indicated that Hunt had been unable to assist in the Butterworth matter. So the only evidence against Hunt was hearsay. Investigators needed to place Hunt at the site where Lucille was last seen. Fortunately, there was something in the file that would help, an old witness statement which had been ignored for years. Four days after Lucille had gone missing, police had made a public appeal for information. An architect named Tony Field came forward to say he'd been in his car parked across the road from the bus stop in Claremont on the day that Lucille was last seen. He was waiting for his wife Audrey to finish work at the chemist. I was just um, sitting in the car and... um this girl, well, she had this very uh, unusual coat, sort of black leather with this fur trimming all the way around. It just caught my eye, you know, and uh, mm. she kept looking at her watch. I thought, oh, she's missed the bus, looking down the road. Anyway, this bastard old car came along and uh, pulled up near her, and um, uh, the f- driver's side door was all uh, battered. Audrey came out about, oh, I don't know, a few minutes um, before six, I think it was. And I noticed that she'd gone and the car had gone and she'd gone. I didn't think any more about it, really, because the chief constable said, ah, she'd just gone off for a few days, she'll be back. Now in his late 80s, Tony Field has a clear memory of that day. When Detective Carrie Milhouse visited in 2014, Field said the early model Holden he'd seen was a turquoise colour. It was the same story as he told the original investigators in 1969, who had failed to see the significance. And uh, I didn't think any more about it until the police came round. In 2014, I think? Yeah, well, he he came round and uh, took a statement and then uh, said that, I would be called upon to give evidence. 40 years on, finding a turquoise Holden seemed an impossible task. But as Milhouse spoke to more people, a series of leads emerged. I was at a, um, a gathering. I was speaking to a young fellow from New Norfolk and he said, um, this is, it's interesting how this, these stories come about. He said, yeah, yeah, he said, I knew Geoffrey Hunt. He said, I used to work in uh, Fitzgerald's store as a paperboy. Geoffrey Hunt worked there. He did a little bit of a few odd jobs and everything. And I... Yeah, I I knew him quite well and um, I knew the brothers. They had this family car. So what he said about the the family car, you know, that's, that's, that's another whole story in itself. 
Tony Smith had worked a paper run out of the Fitzgerald store and knew the Hunts well. He'd been at school with Jeff's younger brother, Ray, whom he described as a good bloke. And Jeffrey, what are your memories of him? I see your face changing straight away. It is. Um, gave you, as a, as a young person, to be around him, you felt uncomfortable. Just said, don't know what it was. It sort of, if you walked into the into Fitzgerald's store and he was there, the hair on the back of your neck would lift. You know, you just felt a bit uncomfortable around him. Crucially, Tony Smith remembered that Jeff Hunt had a beaten up old Holden in 1969. It was always, his father didn't drive and no one else in the family drove. But there is a FB Holden, multicoloured, parked outside the house. Smith went online and found an image of an FB Holden that he said looked like the Hunt's car. It was two-tone, a turquoise blue colour, just as Tony Field had described in 1969. Field could not identify the driver, but Carrie Milhouse found witnesses who had seen Hunt drive the car at other times, including a workmate named John Short. Hunt was then working with Short in Hobart at the white goods division of retailer Nettlefolds, which was known locally as Motors. An actor is reading from a statement Short gave police in 2012. In the time I worked at Motors, I observed Geoffrey had his own car that he used to drive to work every day. I think Geoffrey had an FB Holden. It was pale blue, not a navy blue. Police had never spoken to Short before. If they had, Geoffrey Hunt would have been a suspect much earlier because Short could place Hunt near to the bus stop in Claremont where Lucille was last seen. I remember the night Lucille Butterworth disappeared. On that night, Geoffrey Hunt dropped me home around 6pm. He drove me home in his pale blue Holden car. After Geoffrey dropped me off, he headed west towards Claremont. So police now knew that Hunt had dropped John Short off at 6pm. A few minutes later, Tony Field saw a battered turquoise Holden pull up alongside Lucille at the bus stop at Main Street, Claremont, 10 minutes' drive from John Short's house. And so, Milhouse went to see Jeff Hunt's siblings to see whether the family owned such a car. I remember that car like it was yesterday. It was a Holden FB Special, two-tone blue. The light blue on the car looked more turquoise at night. The interior was two-panelled, grey and blue. At first, Jeffrey's younger brother Ken did not believe that Jeff had killed Lucille, but he was happy to cooperate. Ken gave a statement, read here by an actor. The car wasn't treated that well in the bush and could easily have been damaged as we didn't always drive on the roads. We didn't have that car, a 61 or 62 Holden, a real long time because it leaked oil pretty bad. Jeff was about 17 or 18. Jeff and I would often take this vehicle out and get firewood. Dad would come with us as well. Hunt's eldest brother, Philip, also confirmed that Jeffrey was the principal driver of the FB Holden. I've been shown a car picture by Detective Millhouse, and I agree the car is the same car and colour that Dad bought. Jeffrey was a good driver. He would have got his driver's licence as soon as he was of age to get it. Jeff was eligible to drive from January 1967 when he turned 17. His father, Bill, didn't have a licence. The Holden was bought around April 1969 so the Hunts could attend a family wedding in Launceston and Geoffrey was definitely behind the wheel. The car the family had was the, the biggest revelation in this whole investigation. So when I was talking to Ken, he told me about a family car and I couldn't believe it. My ears pricked up and at the end of it all and I, I got the statement from Ken and everything and I said... I've got to tell you something. I said, this is amazing. What you said about this car, Anthony Field, or a witness at the time, saw a turquoise hold and stop adjacent to Lucille. And that was also a revelation for Ken. 
after much discussion about different points, Ken said, he's done this. He's done this, hasn't he? You know, he's not being disloyal to a brother because from the time Jeffrey Hunt murdered in 1976, the family were estranged. No, no one had anything to do with Jeff. They hated him. And they hated him for what he brought on the family. You know, they, they didn't want to be associated with him. So he had no qualms in, in giving me information about his brother because to him he was just a stranger. Jeffrey's brothers and sister had all left New Norfolk after the murder of Susan Knight, but there were plenty of people still in town who could help. Every opportunity I would speak to anyone about it, to try and generate conversation, you know, someone knows something, especially if, if it involved people from New Norfolk. And doing that, I actually got some terrific leads. I was down at um, a hotel in Battery Point, Shipwright Arms, I think it was. There was a, um, a retired sergeant there that introduced me to an older retired police officer who said that he had a little bit to do with the um, Lucille Bowers investigation. Beauty, okay, tell me about it. And um, he said, yeah. He said, I know a bloke that used to work with Hunt, had a conversation with Hunt in the days after Lucille went missing, and this person was Malcolm Bond. An actor is narrating Malcolm Bond's statement to police in 2014. I worked with a number of people at the store, including Geoffrey Hunt. Hunt was better known as Fred, a nickname. We'd made a nickname for him, Albie, that was really a reference to his albinism, but the store manager didn't think it was appropriate and told us not to call him that, so we just called him Fred. I remember saying to Hunt in the days after Lucille Butterworth went missing, you would have driven past her, Fred. Do you remember seeing her? Hunt just put his head down and said, nah, I didn't see her. I knew that Hunt lived in Station Street, New Norfolk, and that her fiancé, John Fitzgerald, lived in the same street, so I knew that Hunt would have to have known the Butterworth girl. I have no doubt that he was the one responsible for her disappearance because his timing, going past where she was, would have put him right there at the right time. Bond had never before given a statement on this. However, he told Milhouse that police did visit him years after the murder in 1990, and he had shared all of this, but nothing came of it. So Milhouse sought out more of Hunt's workmates. Hunt was known for being a little odd at work, but his behaviour after Lucille disappeared drew suspicion amongst his colleagues. One day he was on a delivery run with John Short. They were near Granton, close to the spot where Hunt dumped Lucille's body, according to his alleged confession in 1976. I was driving and Geoffrey was a passenger. Geoffrey all of a sudden went funny. By that, I mean we were talking before that, but about what I cannot remember. All of a sudden Geoffrey went quiet and did not say anything. I cannot remember what he was looking at, but he stopped talking and I looked at him. He just looked funny. By that, I mean he looked strange. After Jeffrey was charged with the murder, I went to police and told them I thought Jeffrey was responsible for the murder of Lucille Butterworth. I told police I thought Jeffrey may have put the body in the swamp at the bird sanctuary at Ten Mile Hill. Like Malcolm Bond, Short was never asked to make a statement either. Officially, there was no interest in Hunt for the crime, and anyone wanting to work the case faced the daunting task of reassembling the evidence. Over the years, the file fell into disarray. Slabs of it went home with Orb Canning when he retired, convinced that John Lonergan was the killer. There was no mention of Hunt in the paperwork, and he was out of sight and out of mind. He would die in prison. So there was little incentive to chase him for any other crimes. But then in 1999, with the stroke of a pen, everything changed. We'll tell you why after this. Hunt 
was originally sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Susan Knight. It was the only option available to the judge at the time. However, after changes to the sentencing rules, he was given a minimum non-parole period of 25 years in 1999. Hunt appealed that and got two years shaved off. And on June 6, 2000, he was released on parole. I found one of Geoffrey Hunt's jailers. She wanted to be known simply as Ginny. She was a warder at Hayes Prison Farm near New Norfolk, where Hunt did much of his sentence. He wouldn't let anyone get close to him, and no-one in their right mind would want to get close to that man anyway. He was definitely strange. Yes, being so fair probably didn't help him mix well, but the guy was um, odd. Didn't matter what he looked like, he was odd. You met him and you knew something wasn't quite right and he was probably very smart. And you felt that? Yeah, I felt that. In a prison system, inmates like himself tend to learn how to be more clever, they're more slyer. It gives them the skills to get away with it more on the outside. They learn more skills. Do you think he'd still be a danger now? Oh, definitely. If Why that man's physically fit? Definitely. And he was always quite a fit man. They don't change. When you work with people like that, they don't have a moral compass. He found his way to a village on Tasmania's northwest coast. The name of the town can't be revealed for legal reasons and for Hunt's protection. Most people didn't know Geoffrey Hunt was even there, let alone his criminal past. He changed his name by deed poll to... He rented a bungalow on a quiet street on a corner of town. Behind his place, there were just paddocks running up to mountains in the distance. He was rarely seen by his neighbours and seldom, if ever, ventured into town. He had no contact with his family or anybody else, it seemed, except for his parole officer twice a month. His only company was a dog. He seemed to need nothing else. He had a mobile phone, but I understand the only calls he made were to fantasy sex lines and, strangely, agricultural machinery companies. In late 2013, David Plumpton and Christine Rushton paid him a visit. He wouldn't come into the place, would not leave his home, and um, we spoke to him at his home. More than happy for us to speak to him at his home about things, but was in total denial about any of it. Um, what he indicated at the time, what caused me interest, he'd talk about anything bar one thing, and that he'd lose all Butterworth. Okay, recording. All right, the time now is 10.18am on Thursday the 22nd of May 2014. In May 2014, Plumpton, with Carrie Millhouse this time, returned to Hunt's home and arrested him. Mr Hunt, could you please give us your full name, age and date of birth? Geoffrey Charles Hunt. Born on the 13th of January 1950. After linking Hunt to the Butterworth crime scene and to the FB Holden the witnesses had described, they had nearly enough to charge him. Nearly enough. And do you agree that Detective Milhouse and I spoke to you at your home this morning? I do. And we there arrested you and you were advised that you were under arrest for the murder of Lucille Gay Butterworth, a 20-year-old lady, when she was last seen at a bus stop in Claremont on the 25th of August 1969. I do recall you saying that. If this interview went well, investigators were confident that Hunt wouldn't go home that night. The art of the police interview, as Plumpton saw it, was to sell the crook on the idea of jail. 
A confession would ease the burden they carry and even alleviate the misery of the victims and their family. But over 24 years, Hunt had seen the product and he wasn't buying again. I can't help you. I have nothing to say about it. I know nothing about the matter. We're going to ask you further questions in relation to the disappearance of Miss Butterworth. Do you understand that? Yes, you do. Why we intend to do that is because we have conducted inquiries. Those inquiries indicate to us that Miss Butterworth knew you, that you knew Miss Butterworth, that Miss Butterworth would not have got into a motor vehicle without knowing another party, that Miss Butterworth that night was late for a meeting in Norfolk, and we believe you, at that bus stop, offered her a lift, she entered your vehicle and was never seen again. Hunt remained impassive, looking at the table ahead of him through this, but he was weighing each word. However, it wasn't long before Milhouse tripped him up on his new name. Geoffrey, do you use any other surname? No, sir. Uh, I understand you may use the surname. Is that correct? It's nothing to do with my here today. Okay. Are you legally known the surname? I am, but it's uh, been done by what do you call it? Called. Hunt then nitpicked his way through the questions. Police said Lucille was headed for the Fitzgerald store, but Hunt counted that the family no longer owned the store in 1969. It may not have been in their name, though. They did sell it. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Now I'm getting confused. The store in high was imposed in 69. He seemed intent on frustrating the detectives, making them question what they'd been told or read in the file. He wanted to control the tempo of the interview. Whenever he needed to justify anything or some time to regather his composure, Hunt launched into a winding, pointless anecdote. But you're not a silly man. Nothing gets past you, does it? Well, my father taught me years ago, don't let anyone try standing over and intimidating you. That's also the same statement my uncle Mac Mork said. But didn't your father do exactly that? Didn't your father actually treat you like that? Wasn't he really rough on you, your dad? Oh, no. Can't be called. Yeah, Jeff, why can't you acknowledge that? Your brothers have told me. Well, I don't know what they've told you. Your dad's flushed your head down the toilet. He, he really singled you out for... I'll tell you, it did not happen. Your dad singled you out. You're fabricating things, yeah? I've brought them all with me. I've brought them all. They're all signed statutory declarations. Fair enough. I'm telling you, you're fabricating things. How did your father treat your mother? This question couldn't be dodged. It cut straight to Hunt's most unhappy childhood memories. There was an audible sigh as he remembered what happened at home. Well, it's a, that's a hard thing to answer, Inspector. Um, my father had a problem which was alcohol. Yes, quite a lot of returned veterans, as you'd understand, for the atrocities that they had to do. Witness, their, went their outlet yes. was alcohol. Yep. Monday to... Friday or Sunday to Friday, I couldn't get much hell of a nicer bloke. Of course, Mum was the sort of person, Dad come up, oh, bloody drunk again. She'd have his meal cooked, present it to him on the table. I'd walk this effort thing, open the back door and spear the bloody plate out onto the backyard, you see. And uh, an argument start. Milhouse then zeroed in on Hunt's childhood growing up in New Norfolk. As an albino, he'd face ridicule and bullying. John... Fitzgerald recalls him and Lucille washing a car outside the home and you watching. He recalls speaking to you and waving and he recalls her referring to you as Whitey. 
Did any of them refer to you as white? No, Inspector. I cannot help with what you're talking about. Did anybody refer to you as white? Not that I know of. Would you find that offensive? Why would I just brush off the shoulder? You don't. No one brushes it off the shoulder. What else have you been called? I don't know. What else have people called you over the years? I don't know. You were the only person, other members of your family, have told Mr Millhouse how they suffered from that as well. Well, I do not recall that ever happening to Oh, me. you referred to as Albie and Albino. No, I do not recall that. No one ever ridiculed it? never recall any of that sort of, sort of um, verbal ridicule. Millhouse opened up an old magazine spread on the case. There was a picture of Lucille as a brunette. Have, have a look at her. Yeah. She's a pretty girl. Yeah, I don't know nothing about She had blonde hair when you would have seen her. I've never seen her before, other than these photos you're showing me. She had blonde hair the night she went missing. Did she? Yeah. Wearing a, a coat similar to this. Oh, yeah. And that's the area that she was. Well, this is what amazes me over the years. It's gone on for about a decade. Um, where'd she go missing from Claremont? Fifty Claremont. This is the area here, the Claremont bus stop that you drove home past every night. I didn't drive home in that area. I used to catch the bus until 71. That's when I bought my first car. You yeah. never had me driver's license in December 1969. Hunt's story was that he was on the bus that day in August 1969. He didn't get his licence until December of that year, he said. He didn't own a car until 1971, so he couldn't have picked Lucille up. However, investigators knew otherwise. They'd been told he was driving his father's FB Holden back and forth to Hobart since April 69, when he drove the family to his cousin's wedding in Launceston. Do you recall Peter McGann? He's my cousin. Do you remember his wife's name? Oh, I don't know. I never went to it. Jackie McGann. Do you remember going to their wedding? No, I didn't went to their wedding. My mum went to the wedding. Dad worked at a bookmakers club. My mum went up with my auntie Gladys. She went up in an old car and went to the wedding. Of course, that's many years ago. Hmm. It's funny, you know, I've seen a, um, I've been up to see Jackie and Peter in Launceston. They've still got their old wedding register, would you believe? Good they? Attend these. Bill and Mavis Hunt. Well, he never went. Gladys couldn't make it. Gladys did go because Gladys parked a car up outside Annie Myra's car and she's got to put the bloody handbrake on. Well, we've got the record of the wedding, there's the problem. Mm. Yeah, but listen, she's got to put the bloody handbrake on. I accept that's happened, mm. but... She's got to put the bloody handbrake on. Gladys couldn't make it. Yes, she did. She had a black FJ. There's wedding photos. There's a wedding event. I'm not them. If I remember rightly. You drove, Geoffrey. We both? You drove to Launceston. Fucking well, did not. You drove the family to Launceston? Impossible. I drove the family to Launceston in 71 and Auntie Myra died of cancer. Clearly Hunt knew the implications of this point. If he drove to the wedding in April 69, he could be on the road in Claremont in August. Initially, he also denied the Hunt's first car was the clapped-out old Holden that witness Tony Field had told police about. Then he changed his tune. Oh, hang on a minute. Now you mentioned that. We had it. My father bought an old Holden car. It was a second-hand 61 FB. Your dad didn't drive that? 
And he also conceded that he got his driver's licence in 1968, not 69, as he'd repeatedly claimed before. Does it tell us when it was that you remember now? We'll say December 68. We can order it 68, but you said twice previously 69. Well, I thought it was just well, now that I'm, a bloody long time ago. Now that I'm obviously getting somewhere... But it's a long time you, ago. You're trying to change it for your convenience, aren't you? Can I just point something out? I'm not changing for my convenience. Why? Hunt then remembered that, after all, he had driven his family to his cousin's wedding in Launceston, contrary to his earlier assertions. You were driving? Yeah. Who, who went up in the car, Jeff? It was Mum, Dad, Jenny, Ray. So, Terry, Terry stayed alone. So it wasn't your Mum and Gladys, like you said earlier? Hunt's memory of the FB Holden matched that of the witnesses. Uh, it was one I had was two-tone blue. Light blue and just dark blue fins. It all seemed to be falling into place for Milhouse and Plumpton, but Hunt still doggedly stuck to his story that he caught the bus the day that Lucille disappeared. He claimed he only began driving to work in Hobart in 1971 when he bought a new HG Holden Belmont. I think you're just trying to hide the fact that you spoke to this woman at the bus stop for any number of reasons, but if you did... We've got people who will put you there, your vehicle there. All we want from you is the honesty about that. Look, I'm being honest with you, Inspector. I know nothing about this lady who disappeared how many years ago, whatever it was. I've never met her. I've never seen her. I told you before, and I'll tell you again now, whether you believe it or whether you don't, cop, I don't give a stuff. I caught the bus from when I first started at Motors until 1971 in May, May, I believe it was, the only time I took that FB Holden car to Hobart when it had to be serviced or Mum wanted to go down to see her sister in Bathurst Street in Hobart. Other than that, I always caught Charlie S's bus. He used to do the one to make Why then would people say you drove an FB Holden to work? Why then would John Short say you drove a FB Holden to work prior to you buying the Belmont? John Short, as I said, I did agree with it. John Short had a, I did take him home after I got the Holden HG Belmont. I argue that you had attempted to lure other ladies to locations to meet with them. That could have been to the degree of sexually assaulting or even murdering. David Plumpton then played his wild card. He brought up the confession that Hunt was alleged to have given the police in 1976. You are spoken to, as I understand, after the conviction, or even prior to the conviction for Susan Knight, and it was put to you. You say you know nothing about it. You know nothing about it. Nothing about what? Look, sorry, Lucille Butterworth. Yeah. There was talk that Mr Hunt admitted to detectives that he did it that he murdered Lucille Butterworth. I find that hard to believe because if he had him done, he'd have been charged. So these are things that have been said. If Plumpton was expecting Hunt to repeat his alleged confession or provide further detail on that night in Glenorchy Police Station, he was disappointed. In fact, Hunt was more interested in making allegations of violence, not against officers O'Gary and Dillon, but Inspector Orb Canning. Now, he's not no buddy saint at Canning. He was known as a buddy suspect basically for many years. Wouldn't answer his question. He'd bang him around the back of his head with a phone book. Another weapon he had was a lump of that yellow soap they used to use in garden in a sock. Belching around because never, never left many. And the other thing was the old garment toy, a uh, towel. They'd wear it, knot it, and slap you around that because it didn't leave many marks. It was a strange and frankly unconvincing allegation to make. Canning had no record of violence against suspects. His record was spotless. 
And more importantly, Canning had been a kind of ally to Hunt, if you accept what Ken O'Gary said about his inspector. O'Gary and Dylan would have charged Hunt with Lucille's murder were it not for Canning's intervention. As the interview dragged on into four hours, Hunt became more and more belligerent, confident that Milhouse and Plumpton had played their best cards. Sure, they had caught him lying, and they had proved an F.B. Holden, strikingly similar to his, was on the scene. But they had no one who actually saw him on the scene. Well, as I said, you produce bloody evidence of I have any, any involvement with this lady and put it on the table now. Come on. This is going on for too bloody long. About bloody time. It's not going to be five years. But that's not my fault. You're saying to us if you've got any evidence, put it on the table now. I disagree with what you've had to say, and I can indicate investigations will continue. It's never going to end. Good, we'll let it continue. But yeah, so what I'm saying to you, is there any way, anything you can say, anything you can add to this that you want to or would like to now, that you think may be of assistance? Hunt repeated his denials and launched into some alternative far-fetched stories, including one that John Fitzgerald's father, Clyde, was Lucille's killer. Well, Clyde Fitzgerald, he was no bloody saint. There was two women there worked at that shop. One was a mister. She had a baby. Two Clive, you think? Well, that was the story going around the town. And, as I said to you, he had that bloody motor vehicle travelling to town every afternoon to pick up groceries. Why would he murder Lucille? Well, do you know he didn't. Then Hunt tried to rerun the mistaken suppositions of the cops back in 1969 that Lucille was a flighty girl who'd taken off to the mainland. TVT6, where she worked, has all that wardrobe. What was nothing to stop her from getting a hat full of clothes, but the hat on a bloody head for a week. Going to the bloody I don't believe that's it. I'm just saying, going yeah. to the bloody airport, and Mrs George could have looked at the bloody airport. As I watched the interview draw to a close, I wondered why Hunt was not asked about the details of his alleged confession in 1976. Plumpton had raised it only in passing earlier. Surely this was an opportunity to test what O'Gary and Dylan had said about Hunt's admissions. Yet there was a strange reticence. Detective Millhouse, have you got anything further you want to advance at this stage? Pardon? Hold on. I'll just ask you something. No, no, now I'm confused. Oh, OK. Well, speak up, don't hold your peace. Milhouse then whispers, confession. And then he wrote something on a pad and showed it to Plumpton. It referred to Hunt's alleged confession to O'Gary and Dylan. But Plumpton seemed reluctant to attack this head-on. The reason being, he'd not yet got a statement from Dylan or O'Gary. He couldn't yet rely on their testimony. Instead, he brought up another alleged confession as a matter of hearsay. There was prison talk that Hunt had told inmates that he killed Lucille. This had found its way to a legendary detective named Harvey Smith, who passed it on to Jimmy Butterworth. In jail, you admitted to uh, other people... In bloody jail now, aren't we? Detective Harvey Smith has supposedly told one of the Butterworths that you admitted to it. I don't know. Well, why didn't he fucking more charge? Well, I know. As a final shot, it ended more like a damp squib. Indeed, Plumpton couldn't understand why over the years Hunt wasn't charged, given the piles of evidence available to investigators. Over four hours, they'd proved Hunt was a liar, but that didn't make him a murderer, at least in Lucille's case. He was almost gloating by the end of the grilling. Look, Inspector, I give you courtesy and respect. I know you have a, a very hard and difficult 
situation that Mount Dismissing needed to try and solve today. Oh, yeah. We don't have the technology that is available today. And all you're going on now is hearsay and bloody rumour. So as I put it to you again now, if you have evidence to involve me in that crime, or if it is a crime, then you charge me. Right. Hunt knew Plumpton and Millhouse didn't have enough to charge him or they would have done so. He was home free. It was a deflating experience for the detectives who drove him home. To make matters worse, soon after, they got an unpleasant call from the police headquarters in Hobart. The media had somehow got hold of the story. In a surprise breakthrough, police have arrested a man on the state's northwest coast for the murder of Lucille Butterworth. It's understood they arrested him at his home in and took him to Devonport CIB for questioning. And we had, but, wait for this, we let him go. So there was a call as to, what the hell's going on? What are you doing? You're arresting this bloke. Um, why has the media got it? And I think the belief was we let the media know. But if we had charged anyone with that crime and put them before the court, I would let the whole world know. But when you bring someone in and you have to let them go, you don't want the whole world to know. Any cop will tell you that. Letting someone go who you believed to be guilty is not the greatest feeling. It's not something you run around publicising. Plumpton suspects the leak came from inside the force. In the back of your mind, you might have thought, hello, someone is, uh, knows we haven't charged him yep. and is maybe just playing a bit of devilry here. A bit of, bit See, of, that, uh, that could well be the case. That's more than likely the case. And there is no doubt that someone had let a journalist know that we had arrested Hunt. But was it like a double disappointment in a way to have it you couldn't charge him. It's got into the media. The bosses are ringing you saying, what the hell's going on? Yeah, I would have preferred the conversation of be, that's a pity, Plano, that you missed out there. Oh, what can we do to get him again? As opposed to, what the hell are you doing with the insinuation I or Carrie or Christine had let the media, or we had let the media know. Plumpton was ready to charge Hunt that day, and there are still moments where he thinks he might have gone ahead. Tell me, how close did you get to doing it? Oh, look, yeah, to be honest, there are nights you sat there and you thought about, yeah, hold on, we can do it, and maybe if we do that, that'll spring it, that'll cause him to do this, bang. Yeah, we, we went and picked him up and interviewed him, but to actually arrest and charge him and take him before the court based on what history we had, yeah, there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough. And it would have been unfair to everybody involved. Would have been unfair to the family. But they weren't finished yet. They still had leads to follow, including what Ken O'Gary had told them about Hunt's admissions on the location of Lucille's body. When we finished up with him in relation to the uh, night murder, we had to take him around and reconstruct the scene of the crime with a knife girl. And when we finished that, we then came back down the highway and then we asked him then to show us where the... Uh, where he dumped the girl uh, Butterworth's body and he indicated for us to pull into an area and then uh, that was it and then he closed up, he wouldn't say anything, he wouldn't get out of the car, he wouldn't do anything. No one had ever bothered to search the location, that is until July 2015. After a breakthrough in the case, police have begun excavating a riverside lay-by off the Lyle Highway between Granton and New Norfolk for the remains of Lucille Butterworth. By now, police had a lot of circumstantial evidence against Hunt and believed he was the killer, but frustratingly, they didn't have enough to charge him. 
In episode four, we'll deal with the police excavation at the site that Hunt allegedly nominated as Lucille's final resting place. If they found anything they could link to her, Hunt would be arrested again, and this time charged with murder. But what would be left after more than four decades? I'll tell you when understate Lucille Butterworth returns. Lucille Butterworth is a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Billy Simons. Listener.